Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 172nd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, including graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by a very dapper looking Chris Steyerwalt. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, go ahead, get started with that comment uh, bar, type in your questions. We will get to as many of them as we can. So our guest today, Chris Darwald, is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise, where he focuses on American politics, voting trends, public opinions, and the media, topics all uh, of great interest to this audience. He has worked for a variety of media outlets, uh, including, of course, Fox News Channel and the Washington Examiner. Examiner as an author and a well-known political commentator, Chris has written two books, uh, one of which I just finished, Every Man a King, a short colorful history of American populists, uh, which I highly recommend, and he um, narrates that, as well as the main focus of our interview today, Broken News, divides America and how to fight back. He also narrates that. And usually I say people should never, ever, ever narrate their own books, but hey, when you are in the profession of uh, being on television occasionally, professionally, then uh, you do a really great job. Chris, thanks for joining us. Well, that is very generous of you. And uh, I am always more willing to, li I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And when it's the author themselves, I give a lot of bonus points uh, for mistakes and hemming and hawing because I know that they're bringing themselves to the work. So I always feel a little bit cheated uh, if the author doesn't read the book. Whose voice is not quite as um, mellifluous as yours. So um, <laughs> anyway, it, I really enjoyed it. Uh, okay, so first, uh, you are a veteran of many a presidential debate. Before we dive in, I'd love to see if you had any thoughts on last week's second GOP debate. I was there in person, my second um, GOP debate at the Reagan Library. Big difference between the two, but your professional observations, if you would. Well, uh, every four or eight years, uh, candidates in either party uh, want to believe that they can avoid the squalid disaster that is running for president in the United States uh, in our time. And it is inherently awful. Um, it is awful partly by design, but mostly by the convention that has uh, gathered around it, uh, in which people are expected to uh, abase themselves uh, for the entertainment and satisfaction of a relatively small number of primary voters. On that scale, well, so maybe just a little context in this way. Ron DeSantis, 
Ron DeSantis thought that he could avoid having to really be in the in the in the fray. He thought he could sort of clear the field. He could raise so much money and lock in enough endorsements early that he could basically get it into a two person race with him and Donald Trump as quickly as possible. But that's what Jeb Bush thought in 2016. That's what everybody would like to think. Nobody wants to have to go to the Iowa State Fair and eat a corn dog on camera. And nobody wants to have to go to every living room in New Hampshire and every uh, and every shrimp boil in South Carolina. But that's what it comes down to. And what you saw in that debate stage was the dawning realization among the people who are right now running basically for second place. They're going to have to fight with each other. That's what they're going to have to do. And it will intensify. Uh, it will get rougher. And if you think back to eight years ago when you were at the Reagan Library for that one, that was awful too, right? Uh, I that was believe super that, rough. That was yeah, super I believe, rough. I believe that was the one where uh, Donald Trump refused to apologize to Jeb Bush for uh, saying that Jeb Bush was soft on immigration because his wife was uh, born in Mexico. And just these cringy, terrible moments. But that's that's the way the system works. And if you want to be the nominee of either party, you have to submit yourself to a lot of it. And I think you'll see between now and January 15th, when the Iowa caucuses convene, that, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. All right. Well, we shall say tune. I thought that was also interesting, this, I, I guess, innovation of these mini debates and DeSantis is going to go and debate Newsom and Vivek is going to go and debate, I don't know, someone else. Uh, is, is that new? Um, so just for a little historical context, televised debates were not a thing until 1980 at all. So we know about the famous 1960 Kennedy-Nixon debate. There, right. weren't any more, there weren't any more debates after that. Between 1960 and 1980, that wasn't happening, certainly not at the presidential level. So the convention of, well, the parties will sanction uh, media uh, debates hosted by media organizations wasn't really up and running because, for example, in 1980, the famous debate where Ronald Reagan said, I paid for this microphone. You know why he said that? Because he did. Because the candidate, they couldn't find a host that, the suitable. And so the Reagan campaign just paid for the debate and uh, or in part paid for the debate. So what we have is relatively new. Um, so I would I would basically say 2000 on uh, in those cycles, we've had the the the, the stat the status quo and what. If since I'm with objectivists, we can think about the way things should be. Um, and the way things should be, of course, would be not that I am asking questions of them, but of course, that they were asking questions of each other. The the in an adult world, you would have much more like a Lincoln Douglas style uh debate where you'd have people pair off. Uh, and I saw I think it's um, I think it's Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie, but a, a, right. a, a couple of them are, are going to go pair off and have a debate on Fox News. I think that's great. I think that's really good 
because when you have eight or 10 people on a stage and you go down, okay, you get 60 seconds, you have 30 seconds to rebut. And it just turns into people have bring their can talk, yep, <laughs> they bring their canned talking points, they throw them at each other. And it's unlikely that you're going to find out anything new or interesting. And what these debates ought to be doing is producing in, insights for voters to make up their minds. All right. Well, then we will tune into those. Uh, now, back to you, my dear. You grew up in West Virginia, if I'm right. Your dad Accurate. worked in the coal industry. You landed your first job at your hometown newspaper at 17 years old. Um, you know, you have this perspective of the history of journalism, which you share in uh, Broken News, um, but also the context of your own career. How typical or atypical was your path to a career in journalism? Well, I've been extraordinarily blessed because very few people end up making a, a good living out of journalism. And so uh, I, I have. And that's uh, a, an amazing thing to me every day that I am able to support myself uh, and some um, some people I love uh, through being an ink-stained wretch. And I find that a remarkable thing. So I know that's unusual and, and would be unusual at any time because, in truth, journalism is not a profession. It's a vocation, right? Um, it would be like being a school teacher or being a police officer or being something else that you have to, you know, the the voce, you have to be called to want to do it. You have to want to do it because very few people make very much money doing it. And you have to be to be good at it. You have to be animated by a love for it and a desire to want to do it. And when I became a sports reporter or a sports writer uh, the summer after my senior year in high school, I was absolutely smitten. I was totally taken with this this group of people uh, who were uh, surly and profane and hilarious and had a, a camaraderie. I, I, you know, I think the simple way I can put it is I found my tribe. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the path that I followed is not nearly as available as it was. I I was at the end of the old regime and the old regime, which uh, came up after the Second World War, ended at the turn of this century, um, which was that newspapers were the feedstock for the rest of the industry and the industry. National news rested on this broad, broad network of local publications, uh, something like 53,000 newsroom jobs went away between 2010 and 2020. And local newsrooms just got obliterated. And they got obliterated because um, the things that we wanted newspapers to do before uh, were not the things that we thought uh, that people wanted newspapers for. I thought people wanted newspapers so that they could read my searing insights on the county commission meeting or the state legislature. What they wanted were classified ads, movie listings, uh, sports scores, stock prices. And when they could get those things for free instantly elsewhere, um, the, the need to pay for local news evaporated in a astonishingly um, short-sighted decision by newspaper. You know, you, you call a person who runs a newspaper a publisher. 
And people in the newspaper business primarily thought of themselves as in the printing business. Look at all this stuff that we print and we make. It's a manufacturing business. We print all of this stuff, 100,000 copies of this newspaper. And then look at all these trucks and we've got Teamsters and they're doing all of these things. So when, when the threat emerged from Craigslist and other sources of free online information, these publishers made the insane choice of saying we have to preserve our printing business as opposed to saying, okay, the printing business is going to die. And we can talk more later about the interesting ways that that will play out in terms of print as a luxury good as a, instead of a, a, a low status item. But they chose to protect their printing business instead of their advantage that they had over these other these new competitors, which was they had reporters, they had information, they had sources, they could do things in terms of providing information, but they made the wrong choice. And their revenue, the peak revenue for the uh, print advertising industry in the United States was 2005, peaked out at nearly $60 billion, and the lost 90% of their revenue basically in the next five years. Wow. All right. So of your book, Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How We Can Fight Back, you write that journalism about journalism was never your thing. Uh, you'd rather be writing about political history or many other things. Um, but uh, here you are and um, your last few years at Fox News culminating with the backlash uh, you received for your correct call uh, on about Arizona in 2020, pushed you to, quote, put on my hazmat suit and write my industry. So um, for those who aren't political junkies or don't have a, uh, that, you know, long a memory, tell us a little bit, just recount briefly with uh, what happened on that fateful night um, and what you experienced afterwards and what it told you, not just about news, but also this unhealthy relationship with viewers. I think part of what we were seeing also bleeds a little bit over into some of the trends that you talked about in your book about American populism. Well, I, I have been... Uh... I have been compelled to talk about that many times, including uh, called before Congress to testify uh, right. about about that stuff. And I I think the the simplest way I can put it is forecasting elections is I enjoy. I find it fascinating. Um, I if you if you want to. If you love America, you have to love Americans. And the way that I see and know and love Americans is in the crosstabs, in the demography. Who lives in this country? What are they thinking? What are they doing? What's really going on in the country? So for me, demography and public opinion research is an insight into the country that I love. What is what what is America? Uh, and what are the American people thinking, feeling, and doing? And I find that endlessly fascinating. The convention of so the United States does not have a central way to call an election, right? Uh, we don't have, there's no office here in Washington where somebody says, and here's the total and here's the result. And now we can say, as Americans found out in a searing fashion in 2020, 
it takes uh, the Electoral College, I think this time around won't meet until the 15th or so of December. So you have Election Day where state officials are county, count, local and county officials are tabulating and sending results to the state and the, the state elections office is uh, certifying or not certifying or recounting. So all of that goes on for five or six weeks. And then the electors uh, in each state gather and they cast their votes. And then those votes are sent into Washington to the uh, uh, arch archivist of the United States, to the Senate and to the House. And it's a months long process and it happens on a state level. What happened in the United States, we became a TV nation, right? Television, mm -hmm. ru television ruled America uh, and its media habits, opinions, and tastes, basically, we can say late 50s, but let's say 1960 to 2010, television dominated uh, in America. And we relied on television news organizations to call races. Now, we don't have any authority. I'm with News Nation now. News Nation does not have the authority to uh, award any electoral votes. We don't count any ballots. We just have some cool machines uh, and we have some good algorithms and we have a lot of data uh, to forecast like the weatherman does. This is what we think is going to happen in this race. This is the outcome that we think. And when it reaches a point of certitude that we find acceptable, we say, OK, we can now project. And I'm very pleased and proud to say that, you know, I've been doing this since 2010 and we've never had a miss. Uh, we've, uh, I worked with a great team at Fox and there's a great team at news nation and our nerds are the best nerds in the world. And we've never had a miss, but I don't know that the role that television came to play and the associated press is part of this too. I don't know that the role that we came to play is in the competitive interest of news organizations anymore. So if you think about it this way. When there were three networks and everybody was tuning in, what do you want? You want to be first. You want to get there first because you want everybody to have to change the channel, right? Ah, okay. And say, oh, I, they, 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 they get it first. They've got it first. So there's a competitive advantage in being the first to be right. And that carried into the birth of the of of cable news in the 1990s and into the aughts certainly uh are you going to be watching msnbc are you going to watch cnn are you going to watch fox are you going to watch abc nbc cbs who are you going to watch and a lot of people i'm very pleased to say watched fox who did not share fox's ideological bent in its opinion shows because we were very good we were the best um, and that was perceived as a competitive advantage that on these big election nights where you're going to have 20 or 25 million people tuning in, which is, you know, a, a tenfold increase over a typical evening, that this would be a competitive advantage. But what if your goal was not to attract viewers, but to retain viewers? What if your objective was not to bring new people in? but to keep the share that you already have. And if you can make $3 billion a year in profit by just keeping the same three or 4 million people on a loop, right? Then if you call a race in a way that those people don't want, then you're gonna lose viewers. Then they're gonna go away. They're gonna turn off the TV. In the short term, that means that they're gonna turn off the TV for the night. So mm -hmm. do, do this thought exercise. 
if your favorite sports team and or what what's your sport? Do you have a sport that you like? No. That's okay. 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 So let's say, how about the Oscars? No, you're probably you're probably better than. <laughs> but well, let, let's go with uh, the Red Sox. I grew up. Okay. In, yeah. Okay. So, so here it is. That. Your friends and family who love the Red Sox would stay and watch the Red Sox beat the Yankees by thirty runs. If the Red Sox scored ten runs in the first inning, they're not going to turn it off. They're going to stay and watch. This is amazing. There's no running up the score too great that would make them change the channel. As a matter of fact, more people are going to come in to watch the drubbing. On the other hand, what will the Yankee fans do once the Yankees are down 10 runs? They're going to turn it off. They're not going to, they're not going to stay and watch that because it hurts. So now, now, now put those red and blue uniforms on the parties. Nobody stays to watch their guy lose. And you can see in the ratings numbers that as soon as a Democrat is going down, MSNBC or CNN numbers collapse, whereas Republican numbers stay high and get higher. We have made politics into such a a sport, such a, a, a competitive us versus them, red versus blue, uh, that those same functions kick in. So what what good would it be to Fox for its decision desk to say, well, you know, the thing that everybody thought was going to happen, which is that Joe Biden's going to win the election, that's probably going to happen, right? Because there's uh, there were five states that everybody was watching the most closely, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. They were the states that were the closest. There was another ring around those, uh, Nevada, North Carolina, New Hampshire, maybe a couple others. But those were the five core states. And Trump needed to win, basically, and you can do, do the math different ways, but he needed to win four or five of those states. And he most certainly needed to win the traditionally Republican states. Right. So the way Trump won in 2016, he won all of the traditionally Republican states. And then he flipped those three blue states in the uh, in the I-70 corridor, the upper Midwest or however you want to call it. And if Trump lost Arizona, of course, that meant that Trump was not going to get reelected because there's just I mean, there's some crazy scenarios. Well, maybe would you indulge me in this picture a bucket? Imagine you have a bucket and the bucket has little lines on the side for volume. And each line represents one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia. We use a term called partisan voter index, partisan vote index, PVI, which is how much more or less Republican or Democratic is your state compared to the nation as a whole. So if the nation as a whole is four points Democratic, basically, right? You have a, if your state is four points Democratic, you have a PVI of zero. If you're six points Democratic, you have a PVI of plus two, D plus two. And then the other way on the Democratic, on the Republican side. So at the very end, uh, the, the first line on the bucket is Wyoming, the most Republican state. And you've got Wyoming and you've got Oklahoma and you've got West Virginia, and you have these really, really like 45, 50 point red, red, red states. And all the way at the top of the bucket, you have the District of Columbia and you have uh, Rhode Island. You have the most Democratic states that are 30 points, 40 points Democratic. Now fill the bucket. 
if a Republican has won, let's say, Pennsylvania, you can be pretty sure that all the states that are more Republican than Pennsylvania are also going to go in for that candidate. So if you would, if you could just say, if you had said to me, okay, Donald Trump is going to win Michigan, I could have said, then he will win re-election because if you've won Michigan, you've already won all of that other stuff because Michigan is a is a slightly democratic state. If Joe Biden had won Arizona, that's blue water over all kinds of those other states. So it was obvious that Trump was not going to you, you're not a Democrat's not going to win Arizona and then lose Pennsylvania, which is 10 points more democratic than Arizona. So what we were saying to uh, Republican voters and viewers on election night was not going to end well for you. This will be bad for you. So why would it be in Fox's interest to do that? Why would it be conversely in CNN's interest to do that if the Democrats going to lose? So I just don't know that the the what what we came up with is an ad hocracy in the world of television land uh, is in anybody's competitive interest anymore. It's interesting, though, because you also recount how uh, Murdoch had taken Fox out of some kind of consortium that they had been using. So at least from his point of view, he did want accuracy. He and maybe, he, you know, at the end of the day, though, it's like, do you want to be the most accurate or do you want to be pulling in the, the, the most well, eyeballs? We, we have we have a problem uh, as a species which is we are uh, confirmation bias is a powerful, powerful thing. Uh, and uh, when we think about fundamental attribution error and confirmation bias and how human beings are, are coalitional instinct, uh, or as I should say for you guys, spontaneous order, uh, as our coalitional instinct kicks in, um, we are very prone to think that um, other people are that other points of view are not just incorrect, but they're illegitimate or they're wrong. What the problem with the exit poll that had been brought together over the that 40 year span, it was always wrong, right? So exit polling, you get seven waves of exit poll data that's coming from people who are leaving the polling places. So that's really good because you, you don't have to worry about likely voters or not likely voters. You're, you mm -hmm. have people standing with clipboards outside of the polling place as they come out. Who'd you vote for? So there were two problems. Three. Number one, different kinds of people vote at different times of the day. Right. So your sample skews Republican in the very early sample because it's uh, dudes going to work. Uh, you have a lot of you have a lot of dudes going to work. And so it would tend to be more Republican in the early sample. And then Democrats would vote later and blah, blah, blah. blah. So you, you had all this noise in there as the data was coming in throughout the day. Uh, and also Republicans are just less likely to participate in polls, especially when some doofus with a clipboard is standing in front of them when they come out of the polling place. Hey, can I talk to you about how you voted? No, you cannot talk to me about how I voted. So there was a Republican response rate error. There was all of that stuff. But the number one problem, in 2016, 40% of ballots in the United States were cast early and absentee, which is to say no one was exit. None of that 40% was exiting the polls. So they could not be exit polled. In 2020, that number went from 40% to 60%. 
a 50% increase, and that was COVID, right? But it, it's COVID plus something else, which is Americans are a convenience-loving people. And election day seems like a hassle. I got to go. There may be a line. I got to do whatever. I can vote from home. We have five states that have for some time now been mail only, right? You, that's how California and Colorado and Washington and Alaska, it's easy. You just vote from home and you drop it in the ballot box. And early voting in states like Texas has been very popular for years and years. People like it. It's It makes it easier to vote. So, the, so COVID radically accelerated the trend away from in-person voting. To, to defeat that, Fox uh, left that consortium that did exit polling and came up with a new model. We partnered with the Associated Press and the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago and came up with a way better mousetrap. And man, it was great. It was, it was super good. But what we found out was uh, there's a media scholar named Andre Mir. And Andre Mir coined a term that I'm very fond of. It is post-journalism. Yeah, post, I wanted to ask you about that. Post, so post, so journalism is, I have information, you want it, and I can make money in that transaction, right? Uh, whether it's through advertising or whether it's through your subscription, I have what you need and I can, I can make money off of that exchange. But if all that information, if all of those classified ads and movie listings and sports scores and everything else is all available for free, I mean... I can't pump a tank of gas uh, into my car without a little monitor coming on behind me with Maria Menounos telling me about the benefits of almond milk. Uh, you, you, you cannot escape uh, the, the free media fire hose that, has, that is the dousing us every day. So how then will my industry profit? And the answer in post-journalism is not by a top-down process in which we have information and you will and we can get rich on your desire for that. But instead it's a bottom up. You have feelings, you have opinions, and we can mirror those back to you and give you a sense of community. We can give you a sense of belonging. We can give you a tribe. And that the change in the polarity on that uh, is, is very much where we are now. Um, the idea that you could have a bespoke media existence would not have occurred to anybody 50 years ago, right? That you would say, I want my news to be right of center, but more libertarian, -y, but not that liberal, but this kind, but that, but not this guy. <clears throat> and that you could create, a, create an experience for yourself that cosseted you and flattered you and told you exactly what you wanted to hear wouldn't have even been possible. But thanks to, you know, progress brings problems uh, and this has ever been thus. And what I tried to talk about in the book was how I use radio as a really good example. Radio blew our brains. We were totally, we lost it. Radio, the first time in human history where human beings could experience, millions and millions of people could experience exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. You think the printing press was a big deal. Uh, that was a big deal. And who won the beginning of radio? Hitler doing super, uh, Huey Long, uh, Father Coughlin, the, the pits, right? Uh, because it was this new medium that we did not understand, did not know how to use. We were unsophisticated with it. We are in a similar time now 
where there's a cultural lag between this wonderful new technology that allows us to know so much more and be so much more connected and do all of these other things. But our society has not caught up with uh, being able to be responsible users of the, you know, it's a problem of affluence. We are, it's amazing that we can know all that we know and have all that we have, but we're just not, we have not yet figured out how to do that. Is there an ideological aspect to post-journalism? It kind of sounds like post-modernism with its rejection of the Enlightenment project of uh, pursuing objective truth and um, using reason to discover reality. So is there a sense that there, it, it, the facts aren't really quite as important as, as the narrative? Well, my my boss, uh, the great Yuval Levin, peace be upon him, uh, says that the fundamental um, emotional condition of conservatism is gratitude. We are grateful for the good things that we have, and we wish to keep them. Uh, that, is the, that is the underpin, the emotional underpinning. For progressivism and for the left, that emotional condition is righteous outrage uh, at things that are unjust, that things that are unfair, things that are cruel and the vicissitudes of life. And they want to help, right? Um, and, you know, you, of course, you need those two things in tension in a society to have good outcomes, right? You have to be, you, you have to have conservative people checking the outrage of uh, reform, and you have to have reformers challenging conservative people. And, and that's, that's how it's supposed to work. The, the magic is in the, what, the, what that friction kicks off. Who goes into journalism? That was interesting. That was something when you were talking about bias, that I think a lot of people just assume that it is uh, people who are, you know, have an axe to grind, they have an agenda, or they get in the media, and this is the dominant culture. But you said it's actually much more driven by demographics and geography. So there, there's a gatekeeping problem in the big time media. There is no doubt about that. Um, you went to Columbia Journalism School, and you're from Groton, Connecticut, and you went to the and and you see the world this way. Everybody likes their own home cooking, and when applicants come for a job, you're going to say, "Huh, there's something about that person that's really impressive." And it's like, yeah, because it reminds you of you 20 years ago. <laughs> that's what that's that's what you like about that person, and it's very hard to control for that bias. There's so there's a gatekeeping problem here. Uh, on the um, in the the supply of good journalism jobs, but there's also a big there's also a big problem with the demand for those jobs. I use the example of the energy industry. People who go into journalism come from where, you know where they come from. They come from the northeastern part of the United States. Some people from Chicago. Uh, some dude from LA, somebody from Miami, and that's it. You walk through these newsrooms, where, where's everybody from, right? To not be from somewhere between Richmond and Boston or one of those major cities is like, oh, wow. Oh, as, as somebody that's told so different, me, right? as, as somebody yeah. one time in a newsroom told me, and I'm from West Virginia, and uh, they said, oh, you know, uh, so-and-so is from Wisconsin. And I was like, <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> that doesn't, that would be like, that'd be like, that'd be like saying, oh, you're from Washington. So-and-so is from Atlanta. That's not really the same thing. Um, yeah. Because, because it's basically the point was there's somebody else here from somewhere else. There's another person who's here, who's from someplace else. Um, if you have a group of people who predominantly come from the bluest of blue areas in the bluest of blue states, and journalism is more female than male, there are more women in journalism than there are men. Uh, women are more democratic than men are. Uh, and so, and so if you have the, that, that setting now, everybody's a college graduate and college graduates are more democratic than the population as a whole. So if you have a group where the, um, the median person is a college-educated woman from the northeastern part of the United States or a major city, that's going to be a heavily democratic group even before we start talking about individual ideology, right? You'd be at 80% democratic. And I use the example of the energy industry. Energy industry is more male than female, so it's more Republican there. Where do people in the energy industry come from? They come from Texas and Oklahoma and the Dakotas. They come from West Virginia and Kentucky. They come from energy states. And those states are really, really red. So even before you get to talking about energy policy, the people who work in the energy field, if the median person is a dude from a red state who does, doesn't have a college degree, you're going to get 80% Republican there before you do the next thing. Fish don't know they're wet. Most of the people in these newsrooms, I was just at, an, uh, at a news conference, um, uh, a gathering of journalists, and they were all very well-intentioned and all very nice and unaware yeah. of their what how I was receiving what they were saying, right? Um, yeah. the, shibb the shibboleths and the things that we take for granted in our in our in groups, you don't hear them anymore because that's just how we are. And a lot. So that's not to say that there isn't just absolutely gross, rotten bias in newsrooms and that there isn't that kind of stuff that takes place sometimes. But mostly it's just obliviousness. Interesting. Well, and, you know, I thought you really uh, took pains in the book to you not talking to conservatives or liberals or, or you do but you kind of make a real effort i think to reach out to liberals and make the case and make these connections uh tell us about the reception of the book have have you had some success in having people who maybe you know part of that media bubble take a fresh look at things well, I'm looking here at a case of uh, broken news in paperback uh, because we have had a lot of success and people have responded to this yeah. book. Um, I think, I think we all know, right? No one, no one thinks much like with our political system. You don't meet people who say everything's super, everything <laughs> is super. This is going exactly the way we wanted. No, no thinking person is going to look at the U.S. media uh, landscape and say healthy. This is nurturing uh, good discourse and effective. So everybody knows. But what they then immediately turn to is to say, yes. And if it wasn't for those other people, right? If it wasn't for the if bad the dog people, in, the, in the burning house, this is fine. Yeah. Well, that's right. Okay. But, but what 
we're prone to say next is because, and I talk a lot about social or some about social psychology in the book and the power of fundamental attribution error. When we do it, when our side does it, it's for a good reason. We had to do it. When they do it, it's because they're bad. It's because they're bad people and that's how they are. So my goal in the book was to say, it's not good enough to say that you're better than the bad people. You have to hold yourself to a separate standard. There is no American journalism without Americanism. You cannot say, well, I was doing a uh, interview with a guy one time and he was talking about how he was a truth teller and that he wasn't like Sean Hannity who lies. <laughs> and I said, do you want me to tell you you're a better journalist than Sean Hannity? Okay, congratulations. Well, well yeah. done. A guy who isn't a journalist, you're a better journalist than him. But I think you better have a better standard for yourself than being less despicable than the other person. And the only thing that will save us is if people in my business and consumers as a whole take on themselves the duties of citizenship, that there is a fundamental obligation that we all have, a debt that we owe to the Constitution and to the million men who died at arms to preserve, protect, and defend it, we owe them something. And that something on my part, particularly because of the extraordinary privileges that I enjoy as an American journalist, right? Not just the freedom of speech, but that practically they don't kill journalists in the street very often in the United States, right? It's safe and it's protected. And the First Amendment is this extraordinary thing. So I have obligations that I have to carry out. But what encourages me about the success of this book is that I have hard words for news consumers, right? Yeah, and I say, and you're, going, you're, going to ha you're going to have to do better. This is not good enough. And uh, many times I've made the analogy about the obesity epidemic. For most of human history, the struggle was to obtain enough calories in the course of your day so that you could uh, reproduce and pass along your genetic material. That was that was that was tough doing. And the way that you showed you were prosperous in the 19th century was that you had a physique like mine. And you would say, look at how prosperous, look at how prosperous that fellow is. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the miracles of the market and of human ingenuity and all of these things in the middle of the 20th century, it became possible to get as many calories as you wanted, even if you were very poor. And the status switched from wanting to be uh, prosperous looking to wanting to look like a piece of beef jerky, right? You look at uh, rich people now and they're, uh, as Tom Wolf called them, social x-rays, right? As, as slender and fit as possible, because that's how you show status now. In, news and information tells us the same story. For 100,000 years, it was really hard to get news and information. And now you can't avoid it. Now it's everywhere. Um, we have to learn the difference between junk food and good food. And I, I believe in humankind uh, and our capacity to learn and our capacity to get better. Uh, and that uh, experience does teach us and point us in that right direction. But that's the only way that it's going to happen because there's no external force that will come in. There's no government agency. There's no other thing that's going to come in and cause us to be more responsible citizens. We have to decide that we want to do that ourselves. All right. Well, speaking of being at least a responsible host, I'm going to have to apologize to some of our viewers because this has actually never happened to me that we've gotten to, through more than three quarters of the interview uh, and I haven't had a moment to pause and get to some of these questions. And we are not going to get to all of them because we really have just about 
13 minutes uh, left. I mean, definitely some of the things I wanted, I'll pick out some of these questions because I know you addressed them in the book, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead, wanted to get any thoughts you had on uh, how the town was, had played out in the whole Russia gate, the way that that was covered. And I do not want to leave here without talking about um, the dispatch. I think some of our viewers are familiar with it because uh, our senior fellow, Rob Trasinski, has been an occasional um, contributor. Oh, cool. But uh, yes, and I think that just as part of the hygiene, um, if some people cannot bring themselves to listen to <laughs> NPR, that may be kind of pointing us to some of the um, outlets out there or projects or initiatives that really are that that objectivity is uh part of what they're going for and that they are they are kind of consciously eschewing this kind of um preaching to the choir or telling people what they want to hear and i think that is important to this audience we are objectivists you know our founder wrote has seven habits of highly objective people. And whether you know we find ourselves in this audience on the left or on the right, I think we all are wanting to be more in touch with reality because as Ayn Rand said, you can evade reality, but you can't evade the consequences of evading reality. So, so I don't get burned at the stake. I'm gonna just take a couple of quick questions um, that, I'm, that I see came in while I was gabbing on. Uh, okay, YouTube Kingfisher. Chris, thoughts about um, declining ratings of corporate media, rise of independence like Greenwald. I thought we actually had some, some critical world words for, for Greenwald. Um, the, the world of Substack uh, and independent platforms. <laughs> um, the world of Substack, the world of independent media stuff works great for somebody like Glenn Greenwald or uh, Andrew Sullivan or any number of people who already have a brand, right? You already right. have a brand and now you can take it to Substack and you can say, you already liked me when you knew me over here. Now give me five bucks a month here. And that's really good. Now there's an audience capture problem, uh, which is that you you end up having to keep your people pretty happy, right? right. If you have, if you have, if you're making, a, let's say you have 20,000 subscribers and they're all paying you five bucks a month. That's a lot of people, but it's not that many. It's, it's not as many people who'd attend a Friday night football game in Texas, right? It's a pretty small number of people. And the temptation to cater to those people is going to be profound. Um, so audience capture is always something that you have to be aware of. I, I think, um, independent voices augment the conversation, but you also need, so I, I tell people, is the New York times biased? Obviously is the wall street journal biased? Sure. Of course, in in obvious ways and in non-obvious ways, right? Uh, in ways that you sometimes need a decoder ring to say like, oh, they're covering this because they actually hate that. And that's what it is. And you could do Kremlinology all day to look into the bias. But there is this fundamental question of somebody has to spend all the money to get all of the facts and information, right? Kabul is going to fall. Who's going to Kabul? 
right? Uh, an independent journalist with a Substack is not probably, unless that's his jam, mm -hmm. not going to be on the ground doing the news gathering. Getting news is really expensive. Having a stable of reporters, keeping them safe, doing this stuff is really expensive. And I, I, I do not overlook the potential significance, which of course has its own ethical problems, of patronage journalism. I wish that what Jeff Bezos wanted was for the Washington Post to be the world's greatest newspaper, right? Well, I wish that great. what, yeah, that if Jeff Bezos had said, I don't care if it loses money, I don't care if it loses a million dollars a day. I'm so rich that we're going to just let it rip and we're going to have this amazing newspaper and it's going to be fabulous. And hopefully in the long run, it'll work out. But instead, <clears throat> they went for clickbaity. Uh, the, the, I found the phrase uh, that was not used uh, critically of the Washington Post, uh, but instead to praise it as optimizing for anger. Uh, and that in the Trump era, the Washington Post finally figured out how to optimize for anger and really get those rage clicks and, and that all that hot action. But if there's a billionaire out there listening that would like to fund an awesome newspaper and lose a bunch of money on it, but have a great time, uh, I can I can point you in the right direction. There are there is patronage journalism that's doing it, but this stuff is really expensive and it's really hard. Interesting. OK. Uh, another question from YouTube. Do you think the average American pays a lot of attention to the news uh, and events? So I, I wanted to choose that question because you talk about Americans who are kind of checked out politically, who really aren't paying attention at all. I thought it was interesting that I think you said of those checked out viewers or people that like they're 60% female. So you've yep. got that phenomenon coupled with women kind of dominating the ranks of the progressives. So yeah, uh, uh, the, the percentage of Americans who, so the metric that we use, this is the Knight Foundation, this is Pew, um, do research. And for years, it was three to 5% of Americans said they got no news from any source in the previous week. They didn't listen to the radio. They didn't see a newspaper. They didn't go, they didn't go on Instagram and see some news there. They got nothing. That number is 15% now. And you cannot be a partner in self-government with me. We cannot be partners in self-government together if we don't know what the other person is thinking and doing and what's going on. It's more than just having a common set of facts, which is, of course, crucially important. But it's also you have to understand each other. We're in a vast continental nation of 330 million people. I need to know basically, okay, what are you guys talking about? This is what those guys are talking about. You need honest representations. If all you have are funhouse mirror versions of the other side, you're not going to be able to, to work with them. You can't do that. And if you're told every day that they're stupid, bad, and hate America, uh, my experience in Washington, I'm sitting here eight blocks from the Capitol or whatever, my experience in Washington tells me almost all almost all of them are sincerely trying to help. Almost all of them are sincerely trying to help. Now, they may be stupid. Uh, they may be mean-spirited. They may be thin-skinned. They may be all of those things. But I would imagine, you know, in the House of Representatives that is currently lighting itself on fire and then giving itself a swirly, um, <laughs> I, I, I imagine that almost all of the people who are blowing things up believe that they're doing it for the right reason. 
But what do their critics say? Oh, they're only doing it for this. Even the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were misguided, not, it wasn't that they were, oh, this will be a, the worst thing that we can do. They thought they were saving the country. They thought that they were, they thought they were a force of liberation. If you don't know what other people are thinking and where they're at and where they're coming from, you're never going to be able to work with them and deal with them. And that's why all this demonization is so dangerous because we say, well, I don't have to deal with those people anymore because they're the bad people. Right. Well, fortunately, uh, I am the only Republican uh, in a family of Democrats. So I got early training you know, uh, yeah. on how to, yes, either talk across the political aisles or Find something better to talk about. Okay, so we have four minutes. Um, I want to talk about the dispatch and mm. just a little bit of how it started, what the inspiration was, what the aspiration is, uh, and what people can expect to to find there. How, how What's the model, too? What's the business model? How does it differ from some of the other? Uh... So it's there's no ads. Uh, it's uh, subscriber-driven entirely. Um, and the idea is that hot takes are, are bad. Basically, I, if, if I had to, to sum up the dispatch, hot takes are bad. Um, and rather than trying to surf clicks to, cause most of what the people in political journalism are doing is, well, for example, how many Taylor Swift, uh, Travis Kelsey stories have you seen in the past two weeks? All of them, right? They're everywhere. It's an endless seen river. Seen but not read. <laughs> yeah, seen but not read. Just a river of this. Why? Because all of these outlets are trying to surf that wave. If they could just get a little bit of that sweet, sweet click action, if they could just get some of it, that that could, that could mean some more ad revenue. It could be some other things. The model at the dispatch is, there's a, we have a great morning newsletter uh, called The Morning Dispatch that it strives to be thoughtful. And it's not a I, Politico, my gosh, or Axios. What's driving the day? You, you know, our finger on the heartbeat of exactly what's going to happen. And we're going to predict the future. I would say the dispatch is written for normal people who are trying to be good citizens and need to basically know what's going on um, and have some context around it. Um, the, the, the opinion point of view uh, is conservative. Uh, Kevin Williamson uh, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, these are not uh, th these are not Emily's list funders, uh, certainly. But the reporting on Congress, on the campaign, uh, in the Morning Dispatch on foreign affairs is scrupulously objective. It is they bend over backwards to really root it in that because, frankly, opinion is cheap. We have there's a saying in TV: talk is cheap, which is putting a couple of chuckleheads in a room for them to vent their opinions. It's cheap. You don't have to send a reporter anywhere. You don't have to do any of that stuff. And it's an easier way to get clicks. So this is, uh, I guess I will say, against hot takes. All right. Well, last question. Any advice for budding young, aspiring young journalists who may be joining us? Don't go to journalism school. Uh, don't go to journalism school. I'm sorry, journalism school. If you want to teach journalism, you can go get a master's in journalism later. Um, but go find somebody who will pay you to do it. Uh, get a job. 
uh, and it won't be as good of a job as you think it ought to be. But what you ought to do is find somebody somewhere who will pay you almost enough money to be alive and then just do it. Just crush reps over and over and over again. And in those first years, in that that 20 to 25-year-old period, if you love it, it will it will feel like work, but it will also be exhilarating and it will be a joy. And I would just say it's a vocation. If you don't feel that calling, don't do this. This is not a rational job decision. This is a, there's no objective way to say, well, it's a dying fragmented industry. And sometimes people will threaten to kill you if you do it well. Uh, but here, sign here for these low wages. So you have to really want to do it. But if you want to do it, there's nothing better. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think there are probably a few young people in the audience, and uh, I hope you take that advice. Dive in, jump in, get some experience, find out if it's for you, if it's your passion. Uh, and if not, it'll be great experience for you to bring to your next adventure. So thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate your giving us this time. And again, everyone go out and Get the book, Broken News. Uh, and I, again, highly recommend the audible versions of both of Chris's books. So thank you. Most charming. So good to be with you. Have a great day. All right. Uh, and thanks to the rest of you who joined us today. Thanks for your great questions. Sorry, we didn't get to as many of them uh, as I would have liked to, but clearly I had such a great time that I just kept on going on and on. And plus uh, the festivities for our gala welcome reception begins in a couple of hours. So lots happening here in Miami. Um, so I will see you guys next week. Please be sure to join us when uh, one of my favorite people, returning guest, John Tamney, joins us to discuss his latest books, When Politicians Panicked and the money confusion on the next episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Thanks.